October 1973. Chapter 1. Sophie. Dress rehearsal after party. Oh, for God's sake, hurry up. She's standing behind me, hands on hips, a reverse image in my mirror. All right, I'm coming. I rub the bristles of a makeup brush over my palm, consider dusting my face with it one more time, then put it back into my makeup kit on the dressing table. No need to overdo it. You've been saying that for ten minutes. The party started half an hour ago. I know, but it's just down the hallway and nobody's leaving anytime soon. And better to arrive a little late than too early, I think to myself. That's not the point, so if, if we don't go now, I won't get anywhere near Ben all night. And that would be a bad thing, I mutter as I switch off the lights on either side of the mirror. Well, it would be for me. I shake my head, but push back from the dressing table. It's set in a little cubicle formed by lockers built on either side of it and is identical to all the others that line the perimeter of the ladies' chorus dressing room. I spin around to get out of my chair, but as I do, I knock a pot of cold cream off the counter. It flies through the air and smacks into a metal wardrobe rack in the centre of the room, making a tiny ting sound before smashing into several pieces and oozing its contents all over the floor. The rack is hung with our silk brocade kimonos in every glorious pastel colour of the rainbow. The sight of them, hung up in almost rainbow order, makes me want to sink my face into the fabric. But the shattered pot means I must attend to more pressing matters. Leave it! she screeches, already at the door. I can't just leave it, someone could walk in and cut their feet open. She rolls her eyes to the birch ceiling panels overhead. And besides, I continue as I look for something to clean it up with. It's brand new carpet. She runs back into the room, pops the lid off a can of hairspray sitting on an adjacent dressing table, and scrapes the cold cream into it. She pulls a locker door open and dumps the mess into a waste paper basket before returning to pick up and dispose of the broken pieces. Then she grabs an orange hand towel draped over the back of a nearby chair and makes a half-hearted effort to clean up the residual cream. Right, she says when she's done, pulling a tissue out of her pocket and wiping her hands with it. Now come on! I don't know what's wrong with you, she continues as she marches down the hallway towards the green room. People would kill to go to this party and this could be our big opportunity. I smile. For what? Oh yeah, that's right, you don't need a big break, you already have one. She's walking so fast I'm having trouble keeping up with her. Janet! Well, it's true, she huffs. You're Madame Butterfly, I'm just in the chorus. Don't let Margaret Gardner hear you say that. Besides, I'm not Madame Butterfly, I correct her. I'm the cover, and I'm in the chorus too, remember? I slow my steps, forcing her to do the same. And we're not just in the chorus, we're in this chorus. In this opera house. And we're performing at the opening. That's amazing, you know it is. She stops and stares at me for a moment, then relaxes her shoulders. Yeah. She agrees. It's a bit surreal, isn't it? Not really. We're fabulous. She laughs, gives me a quick hug, and we resume our march down the hallway. It smells of concrete and salt and earth. The noise hits us as we round the wall at the end of the corridor. Oh no, she groans. I'll never be able to find him now. She has a point. The green room is crowded. On this occasion, it's not just the butterfly cast and crew that is partying, but the entire opera company including management. 
Although I don't know any of them by sight, there are probably some people here from Opera House management too, as well as members of the orchestra. I can barely see the bar at the back of the room, let alone one short dark tenor. Sure you will. I realise I'll have to help her now, given it was my fault we're late. I'm not thrilled by the idea. Sophie, darling, you made it. Miss Margaret Gardner, Australia's most celebrated soprano and the lead in the opera to be performed at the opening of the brand new Sydney Opera House. Miss Gardner, I respond, with exactly the amount of reverence that's expected of me. Do come join us. Why is she being so magnanimous? I look at the people standing with her around the bar table, the beautiful people, including my least favourite, Geoffrey Richardson. Whatever her reason, it's an invitation I wouldn't dream of refusing. I throw Janet a quick glance. And your little friend too, of course, Margaret adds, misinterpreting the look. Uh, no, says Janet. I mean, thank you, but I can't. You can't? Margaret stirs a pink plastic swizzle stick around in her cocktail glass and the sleeve of her caftan slips down her arm to her elbow. It's quite something, that caftan. Electric blue chiffon embossed with gold leaf butterflies. Silence falls over the group and it's so loud it hurts my ears. No, I can't. I need to find Ben. Margaret raises one perfect black eyebrow. Janet is refusing an invitation to join the beautiful people. Janet, who not five minutes ago was whining about not being given a break. Anson, Jeff supplies the tenor cover. Oh, I know who Ben is, Margaret says. And our best tenor, if you ask me, says Janet. It's not the smartest thing to say, given that standing right next to her is Armando Cecchi, Margaret's leading man, a man who is in fact, rather than in Janet's fantasy land, the world's greatest living tenor, and a man whose attention I have long been trying to attract. Apart from a brief smile in passing last week at the Sitz Probe, the first and seated rehearsal with the orchestra, I've made no headway whatsoever. Armando smiles. In that case, I should come and help you look for him, escort him off the premises. Everyone laughs, except Janet, of course. Thank you, but I work alone. Off you go, then. Margaret doesn't snap her fingers, but she may as well. Armando watches Janet as she walks away. I can't decide whether he's watching her because he wants to know where Ben Anson is, or if he's simply watching her. Plenty of men do. Margaret also watches for a moment or two, and then she says, I think another round, Armando, if you would be so kind. She executes a little half-twirl to hold her glass out to him. She's practised that move, I think, because it somehow makes the chiffon fall away to reveal a sapphire blue silk slip that clings to her body in all the right places. He turns his attention back to Margaret, taking the still half-full glass from her outstretched hand. A champagne this time, I think, darling. Let's celebrate. He nods, and then at long last he looks at me. And for you, Sophia? That's interesting. He knows my name. Oh, Sophie doesn't drink, do you, darling? You don't drink? Bloody Margaret. No, not really, I admit. Of course I'll have a glass of champagne on opening night. The beautiful people titter, and I feel as though the halter neck midi I took so long choosing, with its bare back and deceptively demure pattern of pink and blue flower sprigs, may have been a miscalculation. Only half an hour ago, I'd thought it was perfect. 
I understand, he says, a successful dress rehearsal is a one thing, but opening night will be something to celebrate. Have you tried it, Kinoto? At my blank look, he goes on, it is an Italian soft drink, like uh, Coca-Cola. No, I don't think so. I brought some with me. From Italy? Yes, from Italy. His eyes are very brown. The gentleman behind the bar was kind enough to put some in the fridge for me. I can get one for you if you would like to try it. You also bought a case of red wine, didn't you, darling? Margaret chimes in, laying a hand on his arm. There's a gold bracelet around her wrist, studded with sapphires that tone with the blue of her caftan. Take my advice, Sophie. Choose the wine. It's so much better. She does not want to drink alcohol tonight, Margaret. Armando says, and it sounds like a rebuke. Jeff makes a face and Margaret moves her hand. Perhaps a lime and soda? I say quickly. Of course. Armando does this funny little thing then. Not a bow and not a nod, but something in between. And the thick waves of his hair fall about his face. It's a little too long, I think, for the naval officer role he's performing, that is. Anyone else? He spends some time taking orders, and when he's done, Jeff says, That's a lot of drinks, I'll come with you. I put money on it that the offer is not about lending Armando a hand, but about taking the opportunity to tackle him over that rebuff. He's a baritone in the chorus. Not for Butterfly, of course, because there are no baritones in this Butterfly chorus. He's here as Margaret's self-appointed minder. Apparently, he always has been. He's so protective of Margaret, it's boring. Oh God, be still my beating heart, says one of Margaret's beautiful people as soon as they are out of earshot. Amen, says another, waving herself with an imaginary fan. You're a lucky woman. Could he be more divine? Margaret doesn't answer for a moment. She is tapping her scarlet-painted nails on top of the bar table. He's a fabulous leading man, she says finally. More than that, surely. Another pregnant pause. I couldn't ask for a better Lieutenant Pinkerton, she says. Then looks at me. He seems to have taken a bit of a shine to you. I pull my toes into claws in my wedged heel sandals. Oh no, I think he's just being polite. She nods, and I notice a faint frown line between her brows and dark shadows under her eyes. He's very polite, she agrees. Another long pause. I wouldn't take his attention seriously if I were you. I'm not sure how to answer that. I'm saying this out of concern for you, my dear. She pats my hand as she looks me up and down. Like many Mediterranean men, he's an incorrigible flirt. Can't help himself. That he is. Ben Anson has appeared from nowhere, sans Janet. Standing to one side of our little group with a smirk on his face. But please don't fight over him, ladies. If he ever turns, he's mine. Margaret surprises me by smacking him on the arm. Darling, you're wasting your time there. I've told you before, don't play games you cannot win. Armando makes slow progress back to us because people keep slapping him on the back or stopping him for a quick word. I catch snatches of the conversation. Yes, it was an amazing dress rehearsal. Yes, opening night will be something else. Yes, this will finally put Sydney first and Australia second on the operatic world map. I wonder briefly, because the answer is probably obvious, what Jorn Jutzen would have to say about that. Lifesaver, Margaret trills, 
as he rejoins the group. He puts the drinks tray down in the middle of the table. Sophia, he says, handing me my drink. Uh, May I call you Sophia? Sure. I give him a long look, without blinking, then add, but it's not my name. He smiles. But it suits you, no? He returns my look. Sophia, goddess of wisdom. Margaret doesn't like the conversation. I can hear it in the way her earrings jangle for his attention. A fallen goddess, wasn't she, Armando? It was also my grandmother's name. I want to laugh out loud. Lovely. Margaret is suddenly captivated by the bubbles dancing up the side of her glass. Armando turns to me. You are in the chorus? Yes. I need to make the most of this moment. A soprano? Yes. She's the butterfly cover, darling. The little understudy. Margaret says, patting his arm. Quite good, too, I believe. It sounds like a compliment, but we can all hear it's not. You are the cover. He looks as if he can't quite believe it. I'm used to that. Are you surprised? I ask, my tone a little sharp, because although I'm used to it, it's still very annoying. Yes, I am surprised. I am surprised that I did not already know this. I am surprised I have not been asked to rehearse with you. An audible hush settles over our little group. Covers rehearsing with leads. It's not something that's done. Not as a general rule. I haven't even been invited to sit in on Margaret's rehearsals. I suspect because she doesn't want me to. I muster the nerve to say, We could do something about that. I see Margaret's fingers tighten around her glass. He nods. Or we could. Darling, Margaret trills, there's absolutely no need for you to rehearse with Sophie. I'm as healthy as an ox, and given the historic importance of this season, there is not the slightest possibility that I would miss a single performance, even if I were dying, especially given that I'm singing with you. But you do not mind if I have a brief rehearsal with Sophia, do you? I look at Margaret, and her face is like a frozen windowpane. Of course not, she says stiffly. He smiles as he looks back at me. Does tomorrow suit you? Sure, I say, doing my best to sound nonchalant. I will arrange it. He raises his glass to me and then, of all things, he winks. When I arrive home, I can barely stop myself from running up the stairs to my bedroom in the attic. I go to my dresser. The scrapbook is lying on top where I left it. I flip open the cover and survey the large black-and-white photo I have clipped from a newspaper. He's better looking in real life, if that matters, and while the words that accompany the picture wax lyrical about his vocal abilities, they are inadequate. His voice transforms him into a seducer, a weaver of dreams, a magician. When I first heard him sing live at a piano rehearsal, I felt as though I had to stop breathing in order to listen. After he finished the tortured aria, Adio Fiorito Asil, and his last note hung in the air, I looked about the room and realised I was not the only one. We are seasoned performers, but after a brief silence, we all broke into spontaneous applause. How did he get to this place? I flip through the pages and pages of clippings I have collected over the last few years. I accept that he is gifted but I'm on a mission to uncover every step he took to be able to sing at this level, to be able to hold a group of talented performers in the palm of his hand like that. 
I turn to the back page where I've made some handwritten notes. Under a heading I have labelled Personal Preferences, I enter a single word, Kinoto. The light pouring in through the window in the roof spills over the open pages of the Madame Butterfly score. Despite all the practice I've done, I'm still struggling with a difficult piece of phrasing in Un bel di vedremo, and my love-hate relationship with the portable organ is not helping. I would prefer a piano, but there's no way of getting the iron-framed instrument all the way up here, and Steve has been kind enough to let me use his not-quite-fit-for-purpose equipment. I pound out the offending bars once more. When I stop, I hear the door slam, the clatter of platform shoes on the lino floor downstairs, and the sound of keys being tossed onto the kitchen table. Sophie? If only there were a conventional door to my room, I would close it and block her out, but there's not. We are now just days away from opening night, and while I'm aware that hell will freeze over before Margaret would hand me any opportunity to sing in her place, I want to be certain that I could perform the role to perfection, just in case hell does happen to freeze over. There is no door, however, so I will have to answer Janet. Five minutes, I shout back, and then I'm annoyed with myself for shouting. It's so bad for my voice. She makes an exasperated noise, audible even up here in the roof, and I hear the water pipes grumble as she fills the kettle. I keep at my singing for the next 15 minutes or so until she yells, Tea! up the stairs. She's sitting at the kitchen table shuffling our well-worn deck of tarot cards, a mug of tea at her elbow. I made a pot. She gestures towards the earthenware teapot sitting in the centre of the table, my favourite cup and saucer beside it. Thanks, hun. I'm just going to put porcini on, then I'll read the cards. Some artists don't like listening to recordings too often, particularly so close to opening night, but I find comfort in it. Okay, just hurry up. I move over to the record player sitting on the sideboard, lift the arm and set the needle carefully down on the LP. The sound of Madame Butterfly fills the room. I listen to the short introduction before going back to the table and dragging a chair out to sit beside her. I take the deck and shuffle it carefully. We bought the cards only a few months ago, but I already know them so well I can identify the major arcana from the little marks that frequent use has etched onto their backs. I cut the deck and put the two halves side by side on the table. Which pile? She chooses the right. I pick them up and spread the first ten cards. I glance down at them. I'll deal again. No. She puts her hand on top of mine. Tell me what these ones say. I sigh. You could do better. I don't care. I want to know what these ones say. Okay. I pause to read them, left to right, top to bottom. Well, the hidden card, I say, referring to the one on my left, is the Knight of Swords. The hero of the pack, she claps her hands. Ben! The Knight of Swords might be a hero, but Ben is not. Far from it, in fact. This card, I say, tapping the one in the middle, is the obstacle standing in your way. Reversed, she mutters, rubbing her forehead. The eight of wands reversed. Yes, I think it means that this thing you want so badly could be a mistake. She frowns some more, then waves her hand impatiently. Move on. I hesitate, then do as she asks. The moon, 
this is your goal. I'm reading this as meaning you want to reinvent yourself. Well, I guess so. And here at the bottom, we have the peace card. But again, it's reversed, so I don't like that. It's like your reinvention comes about because something else goes wrong. She lets out a long sigh. Great. Here to the left, this is someone you need to let go. If she didn't understand the tarot a little herself, I would lie and take the opportunity to warn her off Ben. The Empress. Margaret, she grumbles. She thinks she's Queen of the Opera. Yes, well, that's because she is Queen of the Opera. What does that mean anyway, let her go? I shrug. I'm just saying what I see. It might not mean Margaret herself, it might be something she represents. Like what, fame and fortune? I shrug. Maybe. I consult the spread again. It does seem like you're going to have to make some sort of sacrifice in order to get what you want. Well, that's a major bummer. I look towards the final card. The ultimate outcome. It's the tower reversed. Don't worry, I say quickly. Everything will turn out fine. But we both know that the tower, even upside down, is not good. The back door crashes open behind us. Steve. Ladies, he says. Janet jumps up from the table, sweeping the cards into a pile. Not quite quickly enough. Ah, had the Ouija board out again, have we? No, she snaps, putting the cards back into their pack and then into the front pocket of her bib and brace hot pants. He dumps his motorbike helmet on the kitchen bench and stands at the back door, pulling his boots off. Okay, what is that god-awful music? Don't pretend you don't know. Not to worry, Brad's given me a Credence cassette. He gives a wink that only I see and pats the back pocket of his jeans. Give us a sec and I'll put it on. We don't want you to put it on. Why is she always so quick to rise to his bait? We're listening to Madam Butterfly. Don't you realise it's opening night on Saturday? He stares at her through the thick lenses of his black-rimmed glasses and for a moment I feel like I'm not in the room. You may have mentioned it. That why you're playing cards? She grunts, huffs, sighs, then spins on her heel and stomps off up the stairs. So now it's just him and me hanging about near the kitchen, with the back door still open to the night. What are the cards about, he says. Ben. He shakes his head. His mousy brown hair has been flattened by the helmet and the ends are tangled around his shoulders, blown about while he was out on the bike, I suppose. Don't be too hard on her, I say, patting his arm. He expels a long breath. All right, he says, but explain that to me, will you? Explain what? Why women are only interested in men who are not interested in them. I laugh. Oh, I don't think that's just a woman thing, is it? I think there might be some men interested in women who are not interested in them. He screws up one side of his face as he knocks his boots against the top back step. Small clumps of dirt fall onto the cracked concrete path. Yeah, point taken. He's quiet for a few seconds. We're playing at Soren's tomorrow night. Oh, well, that's great. I like Soren's. Being a wine bar, they're okay with women buying and drinking alcohol, which is more than you can say for some of the public bars in and around Sydney. Not that I'm a big fan of drinking or pubs, it's just the principle of the matter. Yeah, could do with a female vocalist. Think she'd be up for it? 
Not likely. On so many fronts. Not the least being that I don't think an operatic voice would be exactly welcomed by either the band or the patrons. Um, in a word, no. He laughs. Just kidding. Another pause. Think she'd come along? Free drinks. We are getting awfully close to opening night, so we really shouldn't be running around town in the evenings. I should be honest and tell him no. I can see how much he wants it, though. So I say, maybe. Maybe if you come too? Tomorrow night, you said? Yes. I shouldn't go either, but I find myself saying, I might be late. I have a date. 